0: Listener-supported. WNYC Studios.
1: From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, September 18th. Today is day two of Climate Week NYC, time to coincide with the world leaders gathering in New York for the annual UN General Assembly Session and the so-called Climate Ambition Summit which the U.N. is holding on Wednesday. Yesterday, definitely for the benefit of world leaders' eyes, climate activists staged the march to end fossil fuels. Media reports estimate tens of thousands of people took that walk on a beautiful day for it, from 56th and Broadway, ending at 51st and 1st, just a few blocks from U.N. headquarters. According to multiple media reports, President Biden was a key focus of the march, as organizers targeted him for things like failing to totally phase out oil and gas drilling on public lands, though he has reduced it, and they want him to declare climate change a national emergency. Here's one marcher who WNYC spoke with during the march yesterday.
0: We are so grateful for uh, UN Secretary General Gutierrez, who is leading the charge, asking world leaders to come with real commitments to phase out fossil fuels, This is the kind of leadership we need. We need President Biden to step up, to rise to that challenge, and commit to ending fossil fuels.
1: And the reports quote people at the march, um, young activists mostly, saying Biden risks alienating young climate-concerned voters, diminishing turnout for him in re-election swing states next year, potentially. On this show, just a program note, we're doing a segment every day this week for Climate Week NYC in conjunction with the loose-knit media collaboration called Covering Climate Now, of which this show and WNYC are parts. So in addition to our Climate Story of the Week, which we're doing every Tuesday all this year, we're doing segments every day for this Climate Week NYC. Covering Climate Now also just announced its Climate Journalist of the Year Awards We'll have all three winners as the week goes on, including right now, the envelope, please. And the award goes to Amy Westervelt, founder and host of what she calls the Critical Frequency Podcast Network, which produces series including the ones called Drilled, of which she is executive editor, and Damages. She also writes articles for The Guardian and The Nation, MSNBC and The New Republic, among other places, and is author of books, including All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and the Climate Crisis, published in 2020, and on a different topic, Forget Having It All, How America Messed Up Motherhood, published in 2018. She has also won Edward R. Murrow and Rachel Carson Awards previously, before this covering Climate Now, won and now she's a Covering Climate Now Journalist of the Year. So Amy Westervelt joins us. And so does Mark Hertzgard, Executive Director of Covering Climate Now. Now he is also the environment correspondent for the nation. So Amy and Mark, happy Climate Week. Welcome back to WNYC.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
3: Thanks, Brian. It's always good to be here. Why
1: don't you just tell our listeners first why you named Amy Westervelt a Climate Journalist of the Year?
3: I couldn't be happier than to do that. And Amy, hi, how are you? It's nice to I be are, with you. And thank you. <laughs> looking forward to seeing you on Thursday at the conference at Columbia. And uh, before I extol the reasons for Amy, let me just add that there are two other Climate Journalist of the Year uh, winners. One is Damian Carrington uh, of The Guardian, and the other is Monka Bell of The Times of India. Uh, And for all three of these. And and they uh, will be,
1: by the way, respectively, uh, guests on the show Wednesday and Friday. But go ahead.
3: Terrific. Uh, So with all of these uh, three exceptional colleagues, we are honoring uh, them for their uh, growing body of really uh, extraordinary work. And they are What we try to do at covering climate now is to lift up examples of the best practices so that all of us as journalists and newsrooms all around the world can look at those best practices and say gee how can i do something like that in amy's case um i could go on forever but i will say what we said in the award uh you know sports writers used to talk about a triple threat somebody who could shoot plat pass and play defense Amy Westervelt is a triple threat on the climate beat. She is an amazing uh, digger. She has uh, really been after the whole side of the story about how uh, big oil has been lying to us uh, about climate change. And not just about climate change. First story of Amy's, I think I edited back at The Nation magazine. She went back to the 1920s and showed how this is very deep in the uh, sort of DNA of the uh, oil industry. But in addition to doing those hard-hitting, uh, really path-breaking uh, investigative exposés, Amy's also a, a really skilled um, radio journalist uh, with a great delivery and uh, her, I think, the, I think you won, Amy, correct me if I'm wrong, in the, in the very first year of awards you won in the in the audio category for a, a brilliant piece, pieces I should say, uh, again about the climate deceptions. And then finally and this is something that's so important in today's era, where uh, you know, frankly, it's hard to to get uh, journalism to pay. Amy Westervelt is also an extraordinary media entrepreneur. So when she was trying to get her podcast started, uh, some of the big boys in the in the business at first uh, were interested, and then they said, "Oh no, nobody's ever going to be interested in a podcast about climate change." Uh, we're you know <laughs> goodbye and thank you. And Amy said, "Oh really." okay, well, I'm going to go off and do it by myself. And within a year, she had a million listeners. That's the kind of grit Mm. and determination that all of us as journalists need as we cover the biggest, most important story of our time.
1: And some of you thinking, wait, didn't we used to hear the phrase NPR's Amy Westervelt? Yes, (laughs) that was one of the things that Amy did before uh, she went on her own into uh, climate entrepreneurship. So Amy, congratulations. And I want to dive in on just one very recent example of your work that was just released yesterday for MSNBC called Mm -hmm. How Big Oil is Using Friendly Judges to Muzzle Free Speech. So I'll bite. How is big oil using friendly (laughs) judges to muzzle free speech?
2: Well, um, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this on your show, but journalists don't write the headlines. I'm not really sure what exactly that headline is referring to, but the story is about how um, the industry has been very active in general in criminalizing free speech in, in myriad ways. You know, they are deeply involved in passing these things called critical infrastructure laws, which are uh, making protest um, much more criminalized in many states. It's almost half the states now. I think 21 states have these laws now, which increase the jail time and fines associated with protest near critical infrastructure, which is defined incredibly broadly. So, um, you know, an a, an overpass, a railway, a pipeline, a power station, a refinery—any of these things could be critical infrastructure. A bridge, um, so it's mm-hmm. it's hard to kind of find any place that wouldn't be um, near something that fits that definition. And you know, it's being used. Just in in West Virginia last week, the um, the law went into effect, and four days later, climate protesters were arrested and charged under the new critical infrastructure law. So um, so there's that. There's, you know, the RICO charges against the cop city protesters are a good example as well. That is a um, pretty extreme charge to use, you know, criminal racketeering against peaceful protesters.
1: Um, Can I ask you to so dive yeah. into that one a little? Because that one jumped out at sure. me from your article. And, you know, people following the Trump indictments, know that he's being charged in Georgia under RICO racketeering laws. And this report that you wrote said RICO charges are also being brought in Georgia against climate and other protesters. What?
2: Yes, yes, yes. Um, Yeah, it's really uh, an escalation of some of the tactics that we've been seeing used to try to suppress climate protests for a while now. There's been this tendency to try to describe climate protesters as, quote unquote, domestic terrorists, despite the fact that, that you know, there's not any violence against people involved. Um, it's occasionally some pretty minor property damage. Um, in this case, not even that, you know, it was pe- people peacefully occupying a park. Um, so I don't know how that fits. The definition of either terrorism or racketeering, <laughs> and in this case, especially because you know it's criminal racketeering, not civil racketeering, which you know you have seen some of those charges being levied at at um, at protesters and organizations as well. But the thing that's kind of uh, scary about it is is not just that you know those charges come with. Uh, Increased jail time and fines, but that it it loops in any organization that's involved with protest as well. So that's really meant to scare off organizations like you know Greenpeace or the Sierra Club or the N R D C, big environmental organizations that have been involved with organizing protest which is not an illegal activity in this country um, but are now being roped into these rico uh, claims and i think it's something people should be paying attention to you know even even if the climate is not your issue this is not going to stay contained only to climate protesters once states and the federal government start to think about protests as a criminal activity, that's that's not a good path to be on.
1: Yeah. And that w- wasn't that one, just, just to finish this stretch of the conversation, yeah. um, that particular one at the park that you mm-hmm. referenced, a kind of joint protest against uh, the destruction of some trees there, if I remember correctly, yeah. which is climate-related, uh, an area called the Lungs of Atlanta. I think yeah. you- described it as in your article. A- as and did
2: the, the same state agency that is allowing it to be raised in order to build a police facility, which seems strange. <laughs> <You
1: know>? Right, <laughs> raised <that's> R-A-Z-E-D, and that's what I was going to say, in combination yeah. with the protest against the so-called Cop City, this big right. training facility that some people object to for the kinds of techniques that uh, reportedly they're going to be training police in.
2: And, you know, ironically, some of those techniques include the sorts of counterinsurgency tactics that are being used against protesters, which, again, just seems like such an escalation, um, you know, to be using military tactics against U.S. citizens who are exercising their First Amendment right is a bit concerning. And um, again, these were peaceful protesters. None of them were doing anything. Uh, the police did, however, shoot and kill one of the protesters who, you know, ha- had their hands up at the time, according to the the DeKalb County coroner, mm. um, which ruled that shooting a homicide. So um, mm. it's it's an interesting contrast there. But yeah, I think the fact that you know you saw this united protest that was both pushing back against over policing and Pushing back against, you know, the destruction of nature and ecosystems and things like that is, is probably what prompted the the massive overreaction. Um I, I think that that seeing those, you know, groups aligned is not something that uh industry wants to see or that lots of people in power want
1: to see, frankly. Erin in Brooklyn, you're on W N Y C. Hey Aaron, thanks for calling in.
0: Hi, Brian. Thank you. Um, I was at the March to End Fossil Fuels yesterday with the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. And we were there really to um, highlight our victory this year, passing the Build Public Renewables Act in June, which is, some would say, the most ambitious climate legislation in New York history. But DSA and the rest of the public power coalition really want that to be the first of many steps towards publicly owned renewable energy across New York state. And I just have to say, as a member of the communications team, seeing the mass movement towards clean energy in New York, um, after years of organizing, getting that bill passed, there's a lot of energy uh, in the streets and in the legislature. So as always, anyone uh, can join up with DSA, but I think there's a lot of energy for, for many more bills like this.
1: That's good. How, how, what was your I was going to ask Mark if he was there and with the impression sure. that he got as a reporter. But let me ask you before you go, Aaron, as a marcher mm-hmm. and a DSA member, um, the media reports I've been reading have been saying disappointment with President Biden, despite good climate things that he's done, was a main focus. I'm curious if you felt that way or experienced your fellow marchers that way.
0: Well, you know, I see a lot of people on the streets, old and young, um, all these different demographics, and a lot of those signs were anti Biden. I think that personally, I think the what Biden was hoping to pass on on climate with build back better was really fantastic. but this is an emergency. this is a crisis, and we need the most powerful action we can from the executive branch to pass really transformative legislation. We can't, we can't wait. So that's why we're really focusing on the mass organizing and then also rallying New York state um, legislators and the federal government.
1: You think a lot of your fellow DSA members might sit out the 2024 election if Biden doesn't do a lot more on climate? Let's, just, let's assume it's Biden versus Trump.
0: I really can't speak for the rest of DSA. I know that no one wants Trump in office again, and we'll go to the polls if necessary. But you know, I think that we really want to show that this is a powerful movement, and you know, our our electeds are beholden to us, especially all these young people I saw at the march yesterday who want to have a clean, livable future.
1: Aaron, thank you, thank you very much for your call. Yeah, Mark, it's always something the political left has to grapple with, right? How much to abandon liberal politicians, meaning politicians who are merely liberal, who they see as not going far enough, but at the risk of, say, electing Donald Trump again by not turning out.
3: You're right, Brian. And yes, I was there covering the march yesterday. And one quick uh, addendum to what the caller said about that. She's quite correct that that New York State uh, legislation is uh, really, really exceptional and uh, pioneering. And AOC, when she spoke at the end of the rally yesterday, called out that legislation and said, uh, praising it and said, uh, this is what we want to see, not just here in New York, but elsewhere. And she had a very, as usual with AOC, a very pungent uh, soundbite about it. She said, we are not going to go from fossil fuel barons to solar energy barons. We want publicly owned power. Energy should belong to the public. Uh, so that was very striking, and there was, of course, a huge crowd roar at that. I did notice uh, that the uh, conversation, both uh, from the podiums and in the placards, that and the chants that people were were giving during the march, were all focused on Biden. Which, frankly, as a political reporter, I get it, but I also think is quite strange. Uh, Joe Biden, as the caller just mentioned, wanted to do a whole lot more with his climate policy, with the the Green New Deal, the Build Back Better uh, program, and the Inflation Reduction Act. Why wasn't he able to do that? Because there is a 50-vote Republican veto in the Senate. And you add to that Joe Manchin, a, a coal baron, literally a coal baron from the state of West Virginia, who is the Democrat. He's the vote that Biden needed to pass anything. That's why the Inflation Reduction Act did not scale back fossil fuels. The White House wanted to do that. But um, they ended up with a, an Inflation Reduction Act that is hugely, uh, spends a lot of money to build out clean energy, but does nothing to stop dirty energy. It's all carrots and no sticks. But that's simply a reflection of the reality in Washington. And so if, uh, if the people who are out there marching want to, to change that, I don't think that it's just enough to say, oh, Joe Biden, you're not doing enough. Go out there and give Biden or whoever's going to be the Democratic nominee or president, give him a congressional majority so that he can pass these things. Mm
1: -hmm. Amy Westervelt, I want to touch one more thing with you that I promised the listeners earlier in the show, because we've been covering the auto workers strike. And Mm -hmm. I see you wrote an article in The New Republic this summer called Is Big Oil turning on big auto and also to get your thoughts on in the current political context that while Biden and other Democrats are supporting the strikers by citing the greed of the owners um, and supporting their central demands like percentage raises that approximate the raises their CEOs are getting and a return to actual pensions. Republicans are blaming auto worker woes on climate policy. You knew I'd bring this back to climate somehow, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I knew this was, we
2: we kind of, yeah. I mean, we kind of all saw this coming that, you know, it's not just the Republicans, actually the automakers themselves have also sort of blamed climate policy. It's a very handy get out of jail free card for them to say, oh, well we would pay them more, but you know, (laughs) these electric cars just have lower margins and things like that. the reality is that, Automakers, um, you know, like a lot of companies, will take any any opportunity to to undercut wages for workers. And and workers were promised a just transition in automotive. And instead, what's happened in a lot of cases is that jobs have been eliminated, um, you know, people have been laid off, and then younger people that they can pay less have been hired instead. And that's all been blamed on. Uh, the transition to electric vehicles. So I, I think that this is a a really key moment, actually, for the climate movement to, you know, sort of show solidarity for labor and to push back on this narrative that oh, see, this is what happens when you when you have climate policy. Is that it's bad for workers? Because that is a story that you know the fossil fuel industry has been using for at least. I don't know, 100 years now. <laughs> and um, and and the automakers are, are availing themselves of it now, too. But it's just not true. And um, I hope that, that people can kind of see through that noise.
1: Yeah. Mark, a last word. I'll, I'll cite the um, tweet from Republican Senator uh, Josh Hawley of Missouri, one of the three states where um, plants are being struck right now. He wrote, workers deserve a raise, and they deserve to have their jobs protected from stupid climate mandates that are destroying <laughs> the U.S. auto industry and making China rich. So give us a last coming from
3: someone Coming from someone who wow. raised his fist at the January 6th rioters, that man is not a patriot, and he should not be listened to. But I think this program has showed you uh, why Covering Climate Now was so proud to name Amy Westervelt as one of our climate journalists of the year. Well-deserved, and congratulations, Amy.
1: Bringing it back around to the lead, very (laughs) professional journalist of you, Mark (laughs) Hertzgard, executive director of Covering Climate Now and climate, uh, or I should say, environment correspondent for The Nation, and Amy Westervelt, one of three Climate Journalists of the Year that Covering Climate Now has just named. We're going to have the other two on the show as this Climate Week NYC goes on. Amy, do you want to just um, have a last last word and promote anything that you're working on, in particular sure. your, your uh, podcast, um, something from your podcast network or anything of your choice?
2: Sure. Everything Climate that we do now is on the website Drilled.media. So there's podcasts, written stuff, documents. We've got all the primary documents behind every story accessible there
1: now too. So Drilled.media. Amy and Mark, thanks so much.
3: Thank you. My pleasure.